Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In this uh, next series of talks, I want to introduce the thought and work of Anselm of Canterbury. And my approach is a bit different than is often found. I, we could entitle this The Essential Self. And what I'm claiming with Anselm is that there is actually a shift in thought that we often equate with Rene Descartes. And by locating it in Anselm of Canterbury, I th- that there is a bit, this confuses the way that we normally think of the unfolding of modernity. And I think of the things that are peculiar that we might attach to modern thought. So the idea with Anselm, whether his ontological argument, which he may be most famous for, or his doctrine of divine satisfaction, I think that he's working within the same realm. That is, that the the self becomes an essence, a kind of absolute essence. This is what Kant will say about, in fact, all of the arguments for God, but beginning with the ontological argument, there is a move in the argument in which thought is thought to establish or provide an absolute or ontological surety, a necessity in the realm of Anselm. My point here is not so much to engage the legitimacy of this form of thought, is this workable or is it non-workable, but rather to show how it works, what it's doing, what's required to believe that this form of thought in fact is legitimate. And what is taking place in the ontological argument is then focused, it's carried over into Anselm's doctrine of the atonement, that the atonement itself becomes uh, an exchange simply between the Father God the Father and the Son, but it's an exchange then that you can trace in the individual as if the individual, and of course this we might, I think mistakenly, but in part it is the idea that you get in St. Augustine or Augustine about the idea of the Trinity being contained in the individual. I think that Augustine, in fact, is better than that, that he's not simply equating the Trinity to the parts of the individual. But what I would say about Anselm is he takes up this Augustinian thought and takes it in a direction that Augustine himself uh, did not. One of the things that we need to get clued in on is the visual metaphor that reigns, I think, throughout the entire mode of thinking that you're, we've shifted into with Anselm. Martin Jay has a wonderful book called Downcast Eyes, tracing the history of Western thought as it became centered on the metaphor of the mind's eye. His contention that Platonic thought, and of course Anselm is uh, specifically taking up Plato, that Platonic thought taken up into Western philosophy meant this thought was captured by the visual metaphor. So when we talk about the self as an essence, as the essential self, again, what we're delving into is in 
Freudian terms, the idea of the essence of the ego. And of course, the ego is posited in a Lacanian Freudian framework as a visual ascertainment of the self, that it is posited as a kind of object. The pursuit, then, of unchanging, static forms, the focus on the ahistorical, the visual, you know, is is focused on an object, on that which is static. The visual is not taken up with the unfolding of language and time and the dynamic of history, the attempt to attain an understanding which escapes time. And really, that's what I'm, I think we're doing throughout this, that this is the way Richard Rorty is going to describe the history of Western thought, is the attempt to continually depart from ordinary human existence. And this is the significance that he finds in Wittgenstein. The attempt in some way, what you're doing in a visual metaphor is you're escaping change. Or, in fact, you know, when you say you're escaping change, you're failing to allow for the dynamic of time. You're stuck in a, in a static category in, a, in, a, in the world of objects. And embodiment, all of these things are, are all linked, that there's an overcoming of embodiment, and they're all then linked to the privileging of the visual over the auditory. And Freud and Lacan trace the universal disease. This is the problem, you know, in Lacanian registers between the imaginary, which is the realm of the ego, which is focused on the visual, and the symbolic realm or the superego realm, which is focused on language, that these two registers are necessarily in an antagonistic relation. And this would be a way of understanding Paul's picture of the antagonism with the individual, within the individual, that the registers are focused either on language or upon vision. If you trace, you know, if you just kind of sum up the ontological argument, Anselm is working us into a corner, and it's a very interesting framework. The idea of the, the greatest thought that can be thought. It's, it's going to leave us with nothing else to think other than this thought. Certainly this being so truly exists that it cannot be thought even not to exist. So if you've not thought the thought of something that cannot exist, and this is you know uh, Anselm's point here, if, if that then which greater no, a greater cannot be thought, can be thought not to exist, then you've not thought the thought, which is absurd. So something in which a greater cannot be thought exists so truly then that it cannot even be thought not to exist. In fact, everything else there is except you alone, God, can be thought of as not existing. Now, the interesting thing in all of this, and this is Kant's point, that what Anselm is doing, and I'll come to this later, he's actually already accomplished the same understanding in his monologion, in which he's really accomplishing a shift from an ontology of the world, and he's accomplishing a shift in which the thinker here is on the side of God, that we're thinking God's thoughts after him, and we have this capacity to arrive at that which is completely beyond time and history. You alone, then, of all things, most truly exist, 
and therefore of all things possess existence to the highest degree. It will become clear as we go into this, it's not just that God possesses this, but in thinking this thought, then we, through the word, and whether he means, uh, you know, he means language, he doesn't mean the word of Christ, but he's going to equate those two things, that in some way we've arrived, we thought God, and we then can obtain to an understanding within ourselves that is equal to revelation, and he will say as much. Anything else does not exist as truly, and so possesses existence to a lesser degree. The way that we arrive at this, he's advising, you know, he's uh, the head of the monastery at Beck, and he's telling his monks that you can take the ontological argument into your cells and use it as a source of meditation. And I believe that what he's really aiming at is a kind of ecstatic experience in which even this argument is set aside and one just glows in the the thought itself, that once you've achieved the kind of feeling of this tautologist resonance, that that is the presence of God that he's really thinking of. Now, he, he himself will begin to question the efficacy or the sense in which it's the presence of God, but the, what he says is, do not go outward. Return within yourself. In the inward man dwells truth, absolute truth resides within, and we're able to attain to absolute truth through an inward journey. Augustine, I think, is, is more humble. He says that we are seeking out a, you know, a radical reflexivity to make myself more fully present to myself so as to remember God who makes self-reflection possible. But what Anselm is doing is saying that once we've entered into the realm of self-reflexivity, that we remember ourselves rightly. This is the equivalent of what the Word, Christ, enables the Father to do, and so we're enabled to, in a sense, arrive at that aspect of ourselves, which is divine, or it's at least a participation in the divine. I think that Anselm is the key figure between Augustine and Rene Descartes, his adjustments to a basic Augustinian theology is going to create a new emphasis. And maybe, again, we don't want to put too much. You know, Anselm is the characteristic thinker of the time. I think that if you did a history of this, you would see that there is a shift in thinking, that Anselm is simply a part of a movement in which grammar becomes a kind of endpoint in itself. He then represents, at least, this shift that we get that will be taken up in Cartesian thought. There's a new emphasis on the nature of sin. What is sin? Sin is a failure to rightly remember the self. What is salvation? To rightly remember. What is the death of Christ, the enabling, the covering of the gap of, in our own memory? Knowledge of God is going to be approached in a whole new way. And all of this flows out of the particular emphasis that he puts on human reflexivity. Reflexivity, I hear what I mean by this term is think of looking at yourself in the mirror. And this is the image that he's using that thought becomes a kind of mirror in which, as in a three-way mirror, there is an infinite depth 
to be found in human reflexivity that is a, the very encounter with the divine himself. So illumination is through contact in Augustine with the second person of the Trinity, which breaks open human interiority and reason. But what Anselm is going to do, he's going to equate the second person of the Trinity with the word. He does this in the monologion, that there are ordinary words and then there is this word. But what he means by this special word, he's demonstrating in human reflexivity. You know, in Augustine, I think that there is a dealing of theology is aimed at ascending beyond the closure of self and uh, to achieve a primary dependence on God. And there is a contact with an actually existing reality. I think that in Anselm, that the redeeming word that he's describing is not, as it is in Augustine, simply equated with revelation or with Christ, but the redeeming word becomes this way of thinking, this reflexive mode of thinking. There is a closure, then, in the theology of Anselm. There's the turn from rhetoric, as you have it with Augustine, to grammar, in which the study of language you know, just the study of the whole of language and thinking here, you know, of Heidegger. Gregory Schufrader talks about the Heidegger may be the last rational mystic, talking about the house of language, and Anselm is the first rational mystic, in that both then see the whole of reality as contained within language. Language, or the place from which language arises, and this is in Anselm, he will there's a singular word and so it is not simply the unfolding of language but there is a silence or a, a sense in which one dwells in the word once you've experienced his argument in, in its fullness you've come to an ecstatic experience of the word so that language becomes the transcendent category that in Anselm reduces the subject of theology to a limited whole we have this definite limit, and we can attain a kind of infinitude through this limit. Martin Heidegger will put it this way, for strictly it is language that speaks. Man first speaks when and only when he responds to language by listening to its appeal. And so Heidegger, the last rational mystic I believe is following Anselm, the first rational mystic, in that both saw language as something like the call of a divine voice. Anselm will bequeath to the Western world a theological, philosophical system intent on establishing its own foundations. Here is foundationalism, truly. By assuming, as Wittgenstein defined it, the sense of the world as a limited whole. Richard Rorty calls it this image of something deeply hidden, this attempt to avoid relatedness, to think a single thought, which is literally what Anselm is doing, a single thought which is not simply a node in a web of other thoughts, to speak a word which has meaning, even though it has no place in a social practice. It is the urge to find a place which, if not above the heavens, is at least above chatter. I think the cure to Anselm, the cure to modernity, which Rorty is himself pointing out, is in Wittgenstein's notion of embodiment. I think already in 
Anselm, that's precisely what is missing. He seeks solutions purely within the rational subject. The rightly thinking subject is equated with the saved subject. He will depend on what he calls a natural interiority. That is that we have this capacity and he sees his own meditative theology as the functional equivalent of revelation. There is a parallel within human thought, human philosophy. We might call it natural philosophy. I think here are the beginnings of an understanding of revelation of you know, natural revelation that will be in competition with the special revelation of Christ. He will equate the divine word with the human word. That is Logos word. Uh, he's going to use that as the equivalent, and he will equate the attainment of self-presence, which he's in pursuit of. I always think of Derrida here and that Anselm would have made the perfect subject for an illustration of Derrida's picture of human thought as a pursuit of presence. As far as I am aware, he never took up the theology or philosophy of Anselm of Canterbury, but it is a perfect illustration. Then. And of course, this is, again, a, a psychoanalytic kind of frustration that our pursuit of self-presence is a continually falling back upon an absence and that's what I'm going to claim about Anselm, that in Anselm we're going to arrive at nothingness. And he will say as much that we arrive at darkness, nothingness, absence. But he's going to equate this absence with God. Throughout this thing, he's seeking a visible sign. The absolute which Anselm achieves is to be had only then in its negative form, in the vision of darkness. The vision does not see through the darkness to the light. Rather, it sees the darkness as its own kind of light. He's very Hegelian before Hegel in this, in that he's going to equate nothingness, negation, darkness with light. It is its own kind of infinitude. It is its own kind of light. He says, my understanding is not able to attain to the light. It shines too much, and my understanding does not grasp it, nor does the eye of my soul allow itself to be turned towards it too long. And so there is an apophatic nothingness and negation, but this darkness and absence of God is itself an absolute experience. It's very similar to a Zen Buddha's preparing for enlightenment. He too could conceivably follow Anselm's instructions, which are flee your busy tasks, put aside for a moment the confusion of your thoughts, discard now your distracting cares, and postpone your busy labors. Free yourself, rest a while, enter into the inner chamber of your mind, exclude everything, close the door. Here is pure mysticism. Here is a pure apophatic theology, but it very quickly needs to be added, fused with rationalism. And of course, I think this is the grand mistake in understanding or contrasting mysticism and rationalism. I think that in fact, in Anselm of Canterbury and uh, coming out of Anselm of Canterbury, there is, in fact, the presumption that what we do with reason is in some way 
enter into the mystical or apophatic. That is, he's going to use the argument as a kind of experience. I think that we have here, this, this is why Hegel is so important that Hegel summarizes the capacity for thought that I think we're already tracing out the realms of Hegel's picture of nothingness in Anselm. Anselm says, the soul itself has all that is needed. Enter into the inner chamber of your soul. Shut out everything save God and what can be of help in your quest for him. And having locked the door, seek him out. That is, that where does God reside? He resides in the inner chamber of the self, in deep thought. And so as with Augustine, the, the method is one of examining the mind or soul in order to s discover there the likeness of the divine mind. For Anselm, though, the result is literally irresistible. I give thanks, good Lord, he says. I give thanks to you since what I believe before through your free gift, I now so understand through your illumination that if I did not want to believe that you existed, I should nevertheless be unable not to understand it. In fact, we no longer have a need for the kind of faith that is required to understand who God is historically and in Christ, we now have a sure method, a mode of absolute understanding. No wonder then that Descartes, who is very much a fan of Anselm, who is following Plato, will give us what is called, you know, foundationalism. I believe it's already here in Anselm, that Anselm's proofs are a vision of God. He says, if you are everywhere, why then, since you are present, do I not see you? But surely you dwell in light inaccessible. And where is this inaccessible light, or how can I approach this inaccessible light? I was made in order to see you, and I have not yet accomplished what I was made for. And so he sets out in his proofs to see God. Throughout this, and people often comment that, well, he's praying, isn't that a wonderful thing? And the theology, though, assumes that God answers this prayer in the rational proofs. That is, that the answering voice of God is already there in the voice of reason, in the dialogue of prayer. Though God is one ontological step removed, he is nevertheless seen by the rational soul in and through what Anselm calls a rational revelation. Like Plato, the human immortality of the soul is proven in its rationality, its rational vision. Reason, judgment, and salvation really are one thing in Anselm. He's writing for the monks at Beck who want a tool that will function in their meditations as script scripture normally does. And this tool will be sufficient unto itself that in Anselm's description, nothing whatsoever is to be argued on the basis of the authority of Scripture. Now, he's doing this partly, you know, to engage those who may not appeal to that authority. But, of course, he's also using it, and, and I think actually he's, he, he really is only using it for those who believe in Scripture, but he's giving them an alternative. Sure, the argument will serve as revelation and the object then of solitary reflection will function 
in place of Christ breaking into history. We really might say, well, we have our own means uh, to God. So the monks will attempt to attain a phenomenological experience, a spiritual vision. But unlike scripture, reason will be self-authenticating. The constraints of reason, Anselm says, concisely prove the clarity of truth clearly shows that this is irresistible, this is a necessity, that this goes beyond Scripture. Anselm's entire system takes place in what we might call a reified voice. That is, language or the voice or the word becomes primary essence. It takes place within the recesses of human interiority. Ordinary existence and human relationships are a mundane and distracting order. Thus we go into our cell, close the door, and close the door of our mind. Self-relation and relation to God are equated. They are the same thing. He will gradually eliminate ordinary words in search of a what he calls a breath from which language arises. That is, we're going to get to the primordial Holy Spirit, we might call it. That's not his word. The breath or word is at once without content. It's absolute, but it's a negative absolute. He says, so then the rational mind may be the only created thing that is able to rise to the task of investigating the supreme nature, but it itself is thereby that through which it may come closest to finding something out about it. The obvious inference, then, is that the efficacy of the mind's ascent to knowledge of the supreme nature is in direct proportion, I'm quoting Anselm, to the enthusiasm of its intent to learn about itself. And insofar as it forgets to look to itself, it falls from its reflection on the supreme nature. How do you come to the supreme nature? You reflect on the self. Where is the supreme nature to be found? Within the self. What are we to think about? We're about to think about ourselves. Think here of, you know, the Augustinian picture or the Aristotelian picture, rather, of God's thinking. What does God think about? He thinks about himself. In Augustine's picture, he rightly remembers himself. And Anselm is going to take this up and say that we rightly remember ourselves and then we enter into the divine mind. We enter into being, big, big being. So there is a word, Anselm says, a name, a subject, that is somehow both present and absent within the rational soul that requires earnest devotion to learning its own nature. Anselm refers to it as a natural essence, which is prior to ordinary language. Quote, it is because these words exist that all the other words have been invented. They're all flowing out of this essence. We can arrive at this logos, the essence of the logos. The words that are sought in this perfecting of the rational vision are those with which the Creator expressed Himself in creation. And so as part of the expression of the Creator, the rational mind need only look within to discover the word with which it is expressed. Pure being is available in and through, then, these creative sustaining words. And again, he will emphasize it's really not words, it's a, not a multiplicity of words, but when we come to the pure essence, it's the singular word, 
there is not the movement of thought even of history or of the ordinary movement of language. Quote, but since, as our reasoning shows, it is equally certain that whatever the supreme substance created, it created through nothing other than itself. And whatever it created, it created through its most intimate expression, whether separately by the utterance of separate words or all at once by the utterance of one word. What conclusion can be more evidently necessary than that this expression of the supreme being is no other than the supreme being? And of course, by extension, the expression of ourselves is ourselves. God is his word, and therefore the essence of what we are is to be found in the word, in logos, in language. And again, some Lacanian psychoanalysis enters in here that, you know, Lacan will read all of Freud, what Freud is calling biology. Lacan sees, well, actually it's happening in the symbolic world of language. I think that, that this is a, a correct way of understanding this closed interiority. It is the self that would have itself in and through language. What is expressed as creation is the intimate expression that is at once self-expression and an expression constituting itself. I think, therefore I am. Meaning that my thought in some way produces my being or that my being is to be found in my thought. Expression of the supreme being is no other than the supreme being. The rational soul that is in the image of the supreme self enters into rationality as such by coming, and this is Anselm's word, to the place, the unvoiced voice, he calls it, of expression, where being, little b, meets being, big B, and itself. The manner in which it comes to itself is by grasping that it is in its own interior expression of itself. And so he has in mind here the image of God speaking the world into existence, but this is itself only an image of a deeper reality of God having his being in and through his expression of himself. And in turn, the individual created in God's image has his or her being in the same sort of dynamics of self-expression, which he dubs the word. And so through a series of propositions, he concludes that this pure locutio, quote, does not consist of more words than one, but is one word through which all things were created. The reality of being is conceived of as in the word, whose essence exists so supremely that in a certain sense it alone exists, truly exists, while in these things which in comparison with that essence are in some sort non-existent and yet were made through and according to that word, a kind of imitation of that supreme essence is found. And so his program of imagining being as the basis of being, you know, big B, is the basis of our little b, or of getting at the word big W through the word little w, requires the absolute difference between, you know, so as to transcend the multiple and the temporal. But this in turn empties creation of true being and puts absolute being in an unattainable category. 
what I'm saying here, that you have to have an absolute contrast. There has to be an absolute ontological difference. Think Hegel here again. Absolute difference is going to reduce to sameness. He's going to, here is Anselm manipulating the ontological argument in which there is, you arrive at an absolute nothing, but this absolute nothing is equated with an absolute something. So that nothingness, absence, darkness, this absolute nothingness, absolute difference, is the way in which we cross the ontological divide. Let me uh, end this section, though, with the idea that the picture that he's painting for us is to attain a word that ultimately is beyond the world, beyond ordinary language, but it is a word that arrives at what, that which is ineffable. And so it is a, a voice, it is a breath, it is reason takes us beyond reason. If we put lined up the monologion and the proslogion, that the uh, monologue, the monologion, is then uh, working in the cosmos as we have it, and in the proslogion is going to start where God himself is. He's going to start on the other side of the But I'll come to that. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.